Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Joseph Stewart. On September 11, 1857, a small band of Mormons led by John D. Lee massacred an emigrant train of men, women, and children heading west to California from Arkansas and Mountain Meadows, Utah. News of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, as it became known, sent shockwaves throughout the western frontier of the United States, reaching the nation's capital and eventually crossing the Atlantic. In the years prior to the massacre, Americans had dubbed the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints a Mormon problem, as it garnered national attention for its unusual theocracy and practice of polygamy. In the aftermath of the massacre, many Mormons viewed Mormonism as a real religious and physical threat to white civilization, putting Mormons and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on trial for its crimes against American purity, which became more important than prosecuting those responsible for the massacre itself. In convicting the Mormons, the Mountain Meadows Massacre in American Culture, religious historian Janice Johnson analyzes how sensational media attention used the story of the massacre to inflame public sentiment and provoke legal action against Latter-day Saints. Ministers, novelists, entertainers, cartoonists, and federal officials followed suit, spreading anti-Mormon sentiment to collectively convict the Mormon religion itself. This troubling episode in American religious history sheds important light on the role of the media and popular culture in provoking religious intolerance that continues to resonate in the present day. Denise Johnson, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Joseph. It's good to be here. Thank you so much again for joining us today. And looking at your book, Convicting the Mormons, The Mountain Meadows Massacre in American Culture, and the first question that readers may have is, what is the Mountain Meadows Massacre? When did it take place? Basic details like that. The Mountain Meadows Massacre occurred in Mountain Meadow Valley, (laughs) aptly named Mountain Meadows, in southwestern Utah. It's about 30 miles west of Cedar City. Today, Cedar City lies on the freeway that goes between Salt Lake and Las Vegas. It is just to the west. This was the California Trail in 1857. And 1857 is a tense year in Utah territory. We have a federal army, which is marching on Utah. And on a now notorious 11 September, a white Mormon militia recruited Native American men, Paiute men, to assist them to attack an immigrant train. This train was mostly from the northwest corner of Arkansas. They were on their way to California, and the end result was the Mountain Meadows Massacre. At least 100 people were killed. Only 17 children survived. Thank you for that short overview. Listeners looking for more information on the massacre may be interested in a book by Rick Turley, Glenn Leonard, and Ron Walker called The Massacre at Mountain Meadows published by Oxford in 2008, or a recent book by Rick Turley and Barbara Jones Brown called Vengeance is Mine, about the aftermath of Mountain Meadows Massacre. I also really like in your book, Janice, that you're contributing to a segment of Mormon studies known as the Mormon image. So first of all, what is the Mormon image, and how does your book fit into scholarship on the topic? 
Interestingly, though, Mountain Meadows is the subject of my topic, it is also not the subject of my topic, of my book. Mountain Meadows is a story that will be told and expanded on and swirl around the United States throughout the rest of the 19th century into the 20th and, and now even the 21st century. But what I'm looking at is not really factually what happened on the ground at what caused what happened at the massacre, what were the results of the massacre, but I'm looking about how the story was told. This is essentially a reception history of the story of Mountain Meadows and looking at how the story is told both in the legal actions and the prosecution for the massacre that continued for nearly 40 years after the massacre, and in the popular narrative, which swirled up until present day. So I am most concerned with people's perception, what they understood to be true, because whether or not it was true, it affected things. It changed people, and what they thought was true mattered, even when it wasn't true. Yeah, thanks for that. It also really helps for me to think about maybe the cultural history of Mountain Meadows, what it meant to American culture, as it says in the subtitle to your book. So in the first part of your book, you look at how Americans portrayed Mormonism as a broad cultural concept as savage and its practitioners as savages and connected the religion and its adherents to indigenous peoples. So what does that connection reveal? What sort of discourses does that fit into about violence and massacres in 19th century America? The Book of Mormon, the source of the Mormon nickname for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, originates in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon tells of the elevated position of indigenous peoples and native peoples. So from the very beginning of Mormonism, the Book of Mormon is published two weeks before a church is actually organized. There is this idea of this alliance between Mormons and Native peoples. There are all sorts of rumors that are going to swirl around the Latter-day Saints. They go from upstate New York to Ohio to Missouri and then back to Illinois and then across the United States to, to the West, to Utah. There are going to be these rumors that follow them for a very long time of the possibility of Mormon and Indian alliance. In 1857, this becomes a reality. At a time where the federal army is marching on Utah, President Buchanan has declared that Utah is in rebellion and they want to quell the Mormons' rebellion. But this time, Brigham Young is the leader of the church, but also the governor of the territory. And he wants to be able to harness the native peoples. He wants them to be his allies. They are less certain about this. They have sometimes been treated well by the Mormons, but the Mormons took over their food sources as they colonized. They have always had tenuous relations with the Mormons. And most of the Native people's leaders are of the opinion that we should just kind of sit back and let the Americans and the Mormons fight it out. And then we will decide. But in this instance of Mountain Meadows, John D. Lee, who had a relationship with some of these Paiutes as they were trying to teach Paiute people agricultural ways, 
since most of their food sources had dried up with colonization to give them more opportunities for food sources. John D. Lee had worked in a federal position as a farmer to the Indians, and he knew many of these native peoples. And when he is a member of the Mormon militia, he is ordered to participate in this. He is given the task to recruit Paiutes to help him to attack this train. This makes these decades of innuendos a real thing. And these rumors become real in, in 1857, though it was never as kind of clean cut as the rumors would lead one to believe. I think that also leads into an idea about would proper white people, quote unquote, especially proper white men, work with indigenous people in order to attack other white people or fellow white people. And so in the next chapter, you show that Americans portrayed Mormons as having relinquished their manhood. And so what do you think that that says about Mormonism? And what does examining gender add to the other work on the othering of Mormons in the 19th century? So all of this discourse kind of rotates around ideas about civilization. John Nast's favorite popular picture that talks about American progress. We have this image of Columbia bringing the epitome of America. She's feminized. She's wearing a dress that's about to fall off, but she is bringing light to a dark continent. She's stringing along the telegraph. The railroad is following quick behind. There are people in covered wagons who likewise are bringing light to this dark frontier. And then the native peoples are over in the darkness. There are lots of different ideas about civilization in the 19th century in this time of manifest destiny. And part of this discourse is about gender. Now, Mormons, if they were to see that image, they would put themselves in those covered wagons, bringing light to the dark frontier. But many Americans saw Mormons as over there in the darkness. They had run from the light of civilization. They had thrown off their whiteness and wanted to be there with the Native peoples. And one of these other aspects of civilization is that of gender. And what it means to be men, to be independent American men. Now, polygamy is going to be a lightning rod for all sorts of attention with the Mormon question in the 19th century. And Mountain Meadows gives us a different aspect of this. We'll make arguments that men are hypermasculine with polygamy or effeminate, that women are taking on masculine traits. Mountain Meadows is used very much in the same way both in the popular narrative, but really intriguingly also in the prosecution for the massacre. We have this sense, or I, maybe we are a sense of justice. We want a courtroom to be a place that is free from bias, a place that is free from bigotry and prejudices that exist in the world at large. Yet within these trials, we have two different trials where they're trying to convict John D. Lee for the massacre. He is the one who recruits the Paiutes to participate in the massacre. But there is this question of, can someone be manly and be a man and be Mormon? And throughout both the popular narrative and the legal actions that are taken is this question. The judge who presides over both of John D. Lee's trials speaks to the jury and says, you need to be men. 
implicit within this is this idea that men being the right kind of man, this idea of manhood is that you are independent, that you're not reliant on anyone else. And Mormons are all too guilty. They have given over their allegiance to another man. It's a man that they call prophet and that they are going to give that allegiance for religious reasons. But this judge sees their Mormonism and this idea of being men and manhood as incompatible. And this is something that we're going to get again and again in the closing arguments for John D. Lee's first trial. The assistant U.S. attorney is going to argue to the Latter-day Saints on the jury that they need to be men, that they need to renounce their Mormonism and be independent American men and show the world that truth and justice matters. Now, John D. Lee was very guilty but they hadn't actually shown that at the trial. They didn't actually have the witnesses to demonstrate that Lee was guilty. Minor thing when you're in a courtroom to actually try and prove that somebody is guilty rather than appealing to uh, broader categories of identity, I suppose. And I think this also ties in with ideas, like you said, there's this worry that Latter-day Saints, they owe their allegiance to Brigham Young, to a prophet, in the same way that Roman Catholics owe their allegiance to the Pope. And Justin, you talking about that helps me think about this famous cartoon of an alligator, a turtle on top of the U.S. Capitol building saying these foreign reptiles have have infiltrated our nation. And just thinking about how it's never just discourses of Mormonism, but that it's always tying into something else, too, including the idea that both groups, Roman Catholics and Latter-day Saints, are particularly susceptible to tyranny. And so what does tyranny mean in a 19th century context? And what do you think that it says about Mormonism being defined as a political system rather than as a religious faith or a religious system? So, yeah, this idea, the caption of the cartoon with the turtle, I think the Mormons are the turtles and the Catholics are the crocodile or the alligator. I never know the difference. But are we going to let these reptiles walk all over us? is the caption. And this idea that someone has an allegiance that is higher than their allegiance to the country. This maybe seems ill-fitting with ideas about masculinity or about savagery or about civilization, but all of these different places are places where Mormons are thought to contravene or to cross the borders of civilization. Places where they don't fit the American narrative. Polygamy is always going to be that lightning rod, but behind it, some are going to argue it's much more problematic. It is this thing that someone could choose to show their allegiance to a prophet or a pope, just as the Catholics are going to be accused of, and their allegiance goes somewhere else than to the United States, to America and an Americanness. So there's been quite a bit of work, going back to your earlier question, on the Mormon identity. And one of the ways that the Mountain Meadows narrative shifts very interestingly is around this idea of whiteness. But this is also ties into these ideas about tyranny, because Mormons are supposed to look white. They look like they're American. They look like they belong in civilization. Yet there is something deceptive about their whiteness. And that is the same thing that we get with tyranny. 
they look like they belong. They don't have dark skin that signals to us that they don't belong. They look like they belong, yet they're not Protestants. They're not actually white. They don't fit our expectations for someone that's American, and somebody else might really have their allegiance. I'm really curious, though, because Mormonism, as folks like Spencer Fluman have shown, is that Mormonism wasn't construed it to be a religion. It was seen as heresy or as something distinct from religion. Tyranny, do you think, define Mormonism as something political rather than religious? Even as scholars, we don't necessarily separate those terms today. It seems that in 19th century Protestantism, there was a bright line between politics and religion. Yeah, I think Spencer Fleming has shown us very convincingly that there's a very specific and a very narrow definition of what is defined as religion in the 19th century. And one of the ways that you show that Mormonism doesn't fit, they're not wasps, they're not white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, is that they've got this prophet. There are lots of differing ideas. Sometimes this comes in that all the old Mormons attach to this older way of being, showing their allegiance to the prophet. They're really duplicitous. They're really dangerous. But there are new Mormons that don't have those kind of old allegiances, that those new Mormons might settle into this kind of vision of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Americanness that we envision, and that some of these more extreme elements are going to go away over time. But it's much easier to say that about political entity than perhaps it is a religion. But part of this is saying this isn't religion at all. This isn't freedom of religion. This is wrong behavior and wrong choices. And those wrong moral choices need to be changed to be able to fit in with the body politic. Well, so I really appreciate how you've been talking not only about religion and politics and gender, but also thinking about justice and the ways that the law was seen as being on the particular side of religious causes in some ways, including the fact that a lot of Americans wanted there to be multiple convictions for the Mountain Meadows massacre. And part of that I can completely see as fair because John D. Lee as the only person who is convicted for his role in the Mountain Meadows Massacre, that there were dozens of others who were involved. But even after John D. Lee is convicted in his second trial, Americans continue to want other Mormons, especially Mormon leaders, to be convicted for the crime. What do you think that this desire for vengeance or this desire for justice, depending on who you're speaking to, reveals about popular constructions of Mormonism in the 19th century? John D. Lee's first trial is not really about John D. Lee. It's not about his guilt. It's not about his crime. It is about holding Mormons as a people, as a whole, accountable for the actions of a few, saying that Mountain Meadows is emblematic of what Mormonism is. I think for many Latter-day Saints, Mountain Meadows feels like an aberration. It feels like uh, this moment of really bad, horrific behavior compared with lots of good behavior. But for many Americans, they saw this moment, not just as a singular moment, but as representative 
of this larger whole of Mormonism. And really, in John Beasley's first trial, that is their goal, to say, this is Mormonism. This is what Mormonism is. And specifically, to pin the massacre and the guilt for the massacre on Brigham Young. That is the most enduring success of John D. Lee's first trial, is pinning the massacre on Brigham Young. Until the closing argument, you don't get them talking about Brigham Young specifically. They're talking about leaders. And in most instances, they're talking about local leaders who are at great length from Brigham Young, who is in Salt Lake. This is Southern Utah. This is pre-telegraph. This is pre-train. This is a time when there is an absolute dearth of information, an absolute lack of information. Yet there is this idea that Brigham Young has his fingers in everything. He knows what's going on at all times, and he must be accountable for this. And John D. Lee's first trial is in July of 1875. Brigham Young dies two years later, and the narrative has fully shifted to one that Brigham Young is accountable for the Mountain Meadows massacre. And when Brigham Young dies in August of 1877, a majority of his obituaries will A, talk about Mountain Meadows and his guilt in Mountain Meadows, but also there is this one remarkable obituary that says, even if God's not holding Brigham Young accountable, we will continue to hold Brigham Young accountable. That somehow if God has forgiven this man, we will remember <laughs> what um, what Brigham Young was responsible for. And, and it's a really fascinating kind of holding on in a very violent century where we are, have massacres that litter the 19th century and a very bloody civil war. And people don't see them as the same. They are different. And somehow this is the one thing that is emblematic of Mormonism. You close the book by reflecting on the Hulu series Under the Banner of Heaven. And if anyone has spent any time around Mormonism on social media, you'll know that there are a lot of opinions on the miniseries that you find there. But I really like that you closed your book there. And I was wondering if you could tell the audience why you decided to include Under the Banner of Heaven, and what was the line that really convinced you to add it at the end of your manuscript? So first, uh, John Krakauer's book, which was published in 2003, has been in, if we look at Amazon's top 10 books about Mormonism, it has been there since 2003. This is how many people are introduced to Mormonism. And John Krakauer, in the wake of 9-11, is writing about religious extremism. He wants to choose a different example, and he chooses Mormonism to demonstrate the potential for extremism in religion in general. Now, this book is going to have a long life. It's still going to very much have a life. But in the Hulu adaptation that is done, the FX adaptation, the overarching thesis becomes something different. And it becomes this thesis about, again, like many 19th century books and stories that are told about Mountain Meadows, that Mountain Meadows is emblematic of what Mormonism is. And Mormonism breeds dangerous men. This is not an aberration but this is exemplary of the whole. This tells us everything we really need to know about Mormonism. And so in the hands of Dustin Black and the others that worked on the series of Under the Banner of Heaven, 
the thesis has changed, has shifted, not just to tell us something and warn us about the potential for extremism in religion, but that Mormonism particularly has this, not just the capacity, but that Mormonism is inherently violent. This is not just about quirky marital practices, but that Mormonism itself causes violence. So one final question, Dr. Johnson, what are you working on next? I am working on early reception history of the Book of Mormon. So these two projects may seem very disparate, but essentially they're both reception histories. The Book of Mormon reception is fits a little clearer category of a reception history. But I am interested in a people who are mostly Protestant, who adhere to ideas about Sola Scriptura, how they expand their notion of scripture, how they use the Book of Mormon, how they develop a relationship with the Book of Mormon text. And there's much, there may be some blood in the Book of Mormon itself, but this book has much less blood than the first one. The book is called Convicting the Mormons, The Mountain Meadows Massacre in American Culture from UNC Press by Janice Johnson. Janice, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks.